0: Welcome to the Northbridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk.
1: Well, good morning to you in this room and to those online as well. We say welcome to you. I say welcome to you. I hope you had a great new year experience for me it involved a new mexican restaurant and then an early night back at home and uh enjoyed our time as a family and i will also say this if you go to la paloma you will find a red bird that was a former christmas uh decoration at the turner home and was accidentally was meant to go to goodwill dave and and unfortunately, it ended up at the bottom of my car when I took the bag out. I didn't realize it dropped out, and so Dax and I made a new tradition that on New Year's Day we would just decorate places that we were eating at. And uh, and so we're now going to be interested to see how many times we go to La Paloma and there is a red bird sitting in a uh, sitting in a flower pot uh, over there. So welcome you to do that as well. Also, uh, there was also I might add a. Uh, uh, another Redbird at another restaurant, but it fell off before we left. I saw the wind blew it off of its perch. So anyway, we're, that's neither here nor there. Point is, we had a great New Year, and I hope you did as well. Uh, the title for today's series is Nothing New, because the reality is, even though we feel like we're in unprecedented times, I can guarantee you this, in the history of humankind, uh, nothing new has happened. Matter of fact. We can even talk about the the mayor is very quick to point out when we talk about uh, about happenings in Springfield that he will he will pull up uh, ads and pull up paper articles from uh, Springfield newspapers in 1918 during the Spanish flu and he'll point out how Springfield took very much the same approach to life that we are taking today as well and he was when I met with him he shared with us that basically Springfield lived in that scenario for about a year and a half to two years, and then just it kind of snap, normal life came back, and no one really knows why even. Uh, just all of a sudden, articles quit talking about the Spanish flu and got back to normal life about Thelma Lou's cat going and breaking into another person's house and tearing it up and things like that. And so uh, there is nothing new in this world, and we come and approach this scripture today And we see a group of disciples that are gathered in this upper room, like they'd done before many times in their their times together. But this time was different. It was different. I imagine that there was just this foreboding sense that had overtaken the room, a celebration that should be marked with joy and excitement and fun is instead marked with dread and fear and concern i imagine as i come across this text i could just see groups of friends of jesus huddled in corners of the room whispering to one another trying to figure out what's going on in jerusalem what's going on in life what's going on with their movement what's happening uh because here they are for Passover, celebrating the story of Moses going to Pharaoh and through God's help, through God's agency, through God's direction, his people, the Israelites, are freed to walk away from 400 years of, of slavery. Uh, this is a time that they are celebrating the beginnings of their, their country or their their root as a people, the, the birth of their nation. Uh, this We see the reality of this one family sojourning to, to Egypt and coming to live in Egypt, and fairly quickly this family is enslaved. They're enslaved by Pharaoh and by the cruel government of Egypt, and this family turns into a clan, turns into a tribe, turns into a nation, and for 400 years this nation is enslaved. They are praying for deliverance. And for 400 years, there is no answer. Now think about that for a second, folks. 400 years of praying for God to deliver. And these aren't just haphazard prayers that people just think about. I mean, this is about their life. This is about the fact that they are enslaved and they want out. And for 400 years, generation after generation after generation, God's people are praying and there is no sign of activity. There is no sign of life on the other end of those prayers. Think about the diligence of 400 years of faithful praying. I mean, let's face it, you and I, we pray for four days and we don't get an answer from God. We wonder about His activity, right? We wonder if God's really out there, if He really exists after four days of unanswered prayer when something's going wrong in our lives. You know, hear here, here these people for 400 years. And now, 1,400 years later, Jesus is with his disciples celebrating how God did the miraculous and did the incredibly big feat of literally his people walking out without having to have an armed rebellion, without having to to do anything. God did all the heavy lifting for them. God did all of the work. And, And these people, not only did they just walk out of Egypt, they found that the Egyptians were giving them gifts to get them out quicker. And so they were able to plunder the nation again without without having an armed uh, presence, without having a military, without having any kind of organized effort of violence or threat. And so, fourteen hundred years later, Jesus is with his disciples. But as I already said, this season is different than any other season that Jesus had been in. Here in this time, he finds himself, despite the fact that a week earlier he was being welcomed into the city with. Pound branches and people were crying Hosanna. The reality was Jesus was an unpopular figure in this stage of his ministry. There were more people that had questions about Jesus than were embracing him as Messiah. Things were not going Jesus' way, and and there was uh, there was a sense of foreboding. There was a sense of fear. If you notice, Jesus a week earlier, as I already mentioned, came in the middle of the daytime, but here on Passover day, he enters the city at night. All the Gospels declare that. Why Why do they declare that? Because they're trying to show us that, that there's fear going on. Jesus doesn't come to Jerusalem in the daytime because there's a high probability that Jesus will be arrested. What he has done at this point is he stayed out into the countryside where he would be safe, And then when he comes to the city, he comes under the cover of darkness. He keeps the location secret, secret to the point of where he does not even tell his own disciples where he's going to be staying and where they're going to be celebrating uh, the, the Passover feast. Why is this? Because there's rumors and there's a sense that someone within his circle is going to betray him. So he keeps that secret. Remember, you go back to your, your Bible lessons. What does Jesus do? He sends a couple of disciples and he goes, he says, go over here and you're going to see a man with a donkey. He's going to lead you to where, uh, to, to where you're, we're going to celebrate the, the Passover meal. The uninformed of us, we look at that and we go, oh, it's another miracle. There's just going to mysteriously be a a man. Jesus is looking in the future, and and this is all just kind of happening, just God just orchestrating it. I would argue that what this is is Jesus organized an effort, and he had a person who he could trust deeply, and and this man, this person, opened his home to Jesus, and he kept it secret so that even his own disciples would not know, would not know what was happening until they actually got there to make matters even more fearful and scary, that even with the rumors that Jesus' arrest could possibly be imminent, Jesus, over the last few weeks of this time, is talking continuously about his death, that he is going to die. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but if I sign on to a movement, my hope is that that movement goes somewhere into a preferred future, right? It takes me somewhere in the future where, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a lieutenant or maybe I'm not going to be a governor of a vast uh, uh, plot of of real estate, but at least it takes me to a place that I want to be. It takes me to a place that's healthy and happy and good and and everyone's getting along and we're seeing positive things happening. I don't want to sign up to a death cult. And that's what this seems like it's becoming all of a sudden, right? Jesus is just saying, look, I'm going to be betrayed. One of you is going to betray me. Someone here is going to to take me out, and I'm going to be broken. I'm going to be killed for, for, for mankind, for humankind. Needless to say, this is just a time that's very confusing, very confusing for every disciple, every person there. And that is frustrating, isn't it, because these disciples are much like you and I in that They think that when God shows up, there would be more certainty in life,
0: not less. And we see in Mark chapter 14, verse 17, Mark writes,
1: When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one they said to him, surely you,
0: surely you don't need mean me. Surely you don't mean me. And Jesus responded, It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. You see, the reality is, these people are in the middle of going through a very bad time. And it gives us a a chance
1: to look at a template and to see how what happens when bad things approach our lives and enter into our lives and we see that when bad things tend to happen we tend to just collapse and do nothing don't we some of us we collapse and do nothing by just staying in our bedroom with the sheets pulled over and watching reruns of gilligan's island on cozy tv right and eating doritos in our bed Others of us, we do nothing by simply pushing away from everyone. Maybe we push away from everyone, including family, by busying ourselves even deeper with work or busy work. Or we take on some project we don't need at the time and we try to try to eat up every bit of our energy and every bit of our resource and every bit of our time so that we don't have to spend time with people around us and maybe have uncomfortable d- discussions and h- uncomfortable conversations. We just want to do nothing. I would argue that instead of spending time in mindless activities, like, like watching reruns or spending your time by jumping into just hobbies or or just doing things to try to waste time, to try to kill time, to try to deaden the pain, rather than doing those things, the best place for us to turn when we are in these moments and these times of incredible discouragement, when we're in times of confusion, to run. the Bible. The Bible is the perfect place for us to go to in times of uncertainty. Why is that? Is that because a preacher is paid to say that? No, it's because the reality is much of the Bible was written in times of uncertainty. I mean, think about this. Joseph in the Old Testament, uh, he, he is in a well listening to his brothers argue about, do we kill him or do we sell him as a slave to some slavers. I mean, think about this. Many of you have sibling rivalry issues with your brothers and sisters. You, some of you have talked to me about that over the past, uh, in the past years. But have you ever experienced your brother or sister throwing you in a well and then d- debating with the rest of your family, do we kill them or do we just sell them? What, what do we do here? I mean, talk about sibling rivalry. Wow. And yet, this is a guy, as he's in the bottom of the well, the scripture does not put him in the scriptures as a character for us to study, to say, don't be like Joseph because he's cursed. He is an evil person deserving exactly what he has. No, the Bible says, be like Joseph because he has God with him. Imagine that. At the bottom of the well, and the writers in Genesis uh, can argue that God is with Joseph every step of the way. Think about King David, the man who has the title afterwards that we still call the man after God's own heart. He loves the Lord so dearly, and yet he is awakened one night to be told that his son was conspiring to kill him, take his wives, and take his throne and crown. And yet here's a guy who is the man after God's own heart. Or think about the mother of Moses this fearful, scared, young Jewish mom who puts her baby in a basket and she has to make a difficult choice. Do I, do I choose the death squads in Egypt to have mercy on my baby or do I choose crocodiles to have mercy and not eat him? And she chooses the crocodiles over the death squads, and she pushes them into the Nile, praying that Yahweh, that the holy God, the holy one of her people, would watch over him. Think about 1,400 years later of Jesus as we have already come out of this season where we celebrate his birth, that then several, several weeks later, several, close to a couple of months, about 50 days, I believe, Uh, another mother and father. They're running for their baby's life to escape Herod. And where are they running to? They're running to, oddly enough, Egypt, right? To get away from a cruel dictator who's willing to kill a generation of babies in order to protect his throne. You, You see, much of the Bible is written in adverse conditions in times where backs are against walls, in times where people are saying, God, you got to do something, and if you don't, there's going to be tragedy. There's going to be just dismay. There's going to be bad things happening. But the story continues here in Matthew 14. We go on into verse 22, and the, the writer says, he writes to us, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take ye, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now, again, you and I being raised in church, we sit back and we look at this, and we, we go, There's nothing unusual here, nothing new to see, but think about this. Jesus takes. This meal that, that, that the Passover meal was one of incredible celebration, one of incredible joy of commemorating how the angel of death passed over the people of Israel and exacted God's vengeance upon the slaveholders, the people who did incredible evil for four hundred years for forty generations of people that 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 God spoke on behalf of Israel. I mean the Passover meal was delightful and many prayers were given and feasting was happening this was an incredible time and Jesus turns it upside down and he introduces something you and I know as communion as the lord's supper and he says here i'm going to introduce these are no longer uh, elements of joy but when you take them i want you to think about how i'm going to be broken i want you to think about how my blood is going to be shed and spilled for sin and and jesus he, he introduces very dark images right now of defeat and of death. And then he goes on in verse 27, and he says, You, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you in Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. You see, Peter didn't like this plan, did he? He didn't like what Jesus was saying. And so he contradicted Jesus. And he said, oh, Jesus, even though you said everyone's going to fall away, I don't care what you say, Jesus. I never will. I never will. You see, Peter's like you and I. He does not like this plan. He doesn't like the idea of having to walk through suffering, having to walk through terrible times. It brings us to really what I would argue is the key question for the sermon at hand, for this topic that we're talking about today. And this is a a question that we have to all wrestle with for our lives in order for us to move forward in life, no matter where you're at, no matter where you find yourself and with your family today. And the question is this, can you trust God when there is no evidence of his activity in your life? Will you still trust God even when he's not doing the big things? Even when he's not moving mountains on your behalf and not moving hearts and changing people's attitudes and not opening up doors for you, can you trust him when there's no sign he's
0: around in your life? Your answer will determine your response to how you deal with uncertainty. You realize that? If you can trust God, even when he's not moving, then you will handle uncertainty well. But if you cannot trust God unless you see
1: signs in the sky, unless there's a rainbow created just for you, then friend, I'm going to tell you, you're probably a wreck. You're probably a wreck in this season and you'll continue to be a wreck for most of your life, I would say. If you were to ask Peter and ask the disciples at this time, what what was the darkest what was the darkest hour that you experienced? with your time with Jesus, with your time on earth, what was the worst time, the most tragic experience that you dealt with, the most heartbreaking time? I have a feeling that Jesus or that these disciples would probably point to this season right here. They'd probably point to the time that they had to sneak in to Jerusalem, celebrate a Passover meal quietly in an undisclosed location, and then go out secretly to a garden that they spent a lot of time in, because it was obscure and it was hidden away. To see a a garrison of guards coming to to arrest anyone who was a part of this movement and drag them off to to Pilate, drag them off to Herod, drag them off to Caiaphas to be judged. Those, those, Those disciples would say this was the worst time in life. And I have a feeling... if you ask those same disciples, when was God doing the most in their ministry? I don't think they would say, well, when Jesus took some bread and some water, some bread and, and, and some fish, and he multiplied it to feed thousands, that's when it was spectacular to be at his side. I don't think they would say, well, when we were in a boat and there was a storm happening and he stilled the waters. I don't even think... That the disciples, the few disciples that were with Jesus during his transfiguration, would point to that as being the greatest time that they experienced God's presence and His power. But I would argue that they would point to the same time—the darkest hour, the hour that was the worst time—was also the hour that God was at His busiest. God was doing His greatest work in the life of Jesus, even though no one saw it. Other Than Jesus. How can this be? How can we argue that the worst time is the time that God is doing his most even when no one sees it? Maybe because the reality is that when life is uncertain, God is not, friends. Maybe because of the reality that good things come from broken things. And when life is most
0: broken is when God does his best in this world. Well, Will we embrace uncertainty with the certainty of knowing that God is in
1: control is a question I ask you and I pose to our body today. Will we be people who will just say, God, even though I don't know what tomorrow holds, I know that you do. I know that you're on your throne. And I say right now, God, I trust you even if I feel so out of control you're still God. Now, I understand that you're looking at me today or you're watching your screens today and you say, Tony, that's a cute little message, but you know what? I'm out of work and it won't get me a job. What you just talked about won't get me a job tomorrow. You're saying, you know, it won't help my family. It won't keep my kids in school next semester. It won't, what you're preaching on will not help me pay my bills Tomorrow, and I say to you, you're right, it won't. The offer, the words of encouragement, the words of thought that I offer you will not help any
0: of those things in your lives. It won't help, but you know what it will do? It will maintain your faith and hope. It will give you
1: just a glimmer of some light to help you see that there is is a path through tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. What I offer you today will help you be able to go to bed knowing the confidence that God has not left you. It will motivate you to be on the lookout for grace and for His hand to be working in your life. It will keep you from making bad decisions that will oftentimes make life worse because that's a reality
0: that's. Present in our in our toolbox as well, isn't it? What I offer you today will help protect you from despair. From despair. I end this story, end this message with a story. um,
1: I was thinking about Dana's grandfather. Dana's grandfather. His name's Art Carrier. Incredible man. Uh, I didn't know him for many years actually I knew him for well over a decade but for several of those years it was I was the youth pastor at his son's church you know and it was only just the last few years of his life that it was me as Dana's boyfriend as me as Dana's fiance and then ultimately as part of the family as the son-in-law as the grandson-in-law uh but through the whole thing Art always ex- showed me just incredible kindness and grace he was a Man of mercy. He was a man who was highly trusted. This guy was on several co-op boards throughout southwest Missouri and through Oklahoma uh, for electrical uh, companies. You know, just simple farmer, uh, raised cattle, and and yet he was entrusted to help figure out how power could be distributed all across our region. Uh, Why? Because he was highly trusted because he was a man of incredible wisdom and sound judgment. And this was a guy who did not have a candy-coated life. His, his uh, mother and father died. Get this. They, they did not die during the, the flu of 1918, but, you know, there was about, about 15 years later, there was another flu that came across Missouri, came across America that really wreaked heav- havoc in the Midwest. And, his mother and father died within a week of one another. And here is a young, uh, young boy, a teenager, in his early teenage years. He was shipped off with, some of, with his siblings to family, to an uncle and aunt in Oklahoma that he did not know very well. Living his whole life in southwest Missouri, his life was uprooted and taken to another, to another part of the country. And he also was expected to have responsibility for his siblings as well. So now he goes from being just the eldest child to now dad and mom to other kids. During that time, Art did not get bitter whatsoever. He went to school, went to the ag school in Oklahoma. And as a young college student on a Sunday afternoon, uh, here he finds himself working and in, in feeding the the cattle uh, that was part of his assignment. And as he was weighing out and taking out, measuring out grain in one of the grain machines, a, a spring breaks, bursts out of its casing, and goes into his eye. And here he is, a, a young student losing his eye. And, and he's blinded now. That would be enough. These things I've just mentioned be enough to make anyone bitter, wouldn't it? Be enough to make anyone jaded and angered at God, angered at the world, feeling like that they've been dealt an unfair hand, but not Art. Art was a man who, who put his best foot forward and he worked hard his whole life. And what was amazing to me was here was a man who I met and dealt with that in the later part of his life, you could see the scars. Yeah, there was the glass eye and there was the knowledge of knowing that he did not know his mom and dad as long as most people have the luxury of knowing their moms and dads. But to look at his hands, I remember they were like bear hands. I mean, like these bear paws, not bear hands, because bears don't have hands. They're like bear paws, right? Bear, I mean, just these big things. And they were gnarled and scars all over them from just the, the task of farming and ranching in Southwest Missouri. Uh, I remember as an old man, is he working cattle. Here he is in his 70s and 80s, and one time he busted his shoulder because, you know, a steer got loose that was a bit angry, and it knocked him to the ground, you know, almost trampled him to death. Here is a guy that still through all
0: of those things. Incredible hope, incredible joy, loved his family and loved the Lord. And
1: I asked the question, how? How, through a a hard life, could someone maintain the kind of optimism that Arthur Carrier had in his life? And I would posit, as I've thought about that long and hard, perhaps art knows something about God's Word. And perhaps art has seen God's Word revealed in a powerful way. As As we think about even a verse that many of us have memorized and we know and we could, go to, we could go to any number of races, marathons and half marathons, and we'd see this verse plastered all over shirts and plastered on
0: billboards. Romans 8, 28. I can do all things. Right? We, know, we know that in all things, we know that in all things, God works for the good for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose let that verse just dig deep in your heart right now we know the scripture doesn't say in some things scripture doesn't say in things that make sense to us doesn't say that the
1: scripture doesn't say that in things that are positive, things that are healthy, no, it says in all things, in all situations, in all scenarios, in every possible position you could possibly be
0: put in, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. All things are good. God's people. We just got to give them some time to work themselves out,
1: friends. We got to give time for God to be God. In Israel's case, it
0: took 400 years to experience His provision. In in Peter and the disciples' case, it, it took literally four days to experience the resurrection of Christ. How much time will we give God to be God? Can we trust God when there is no evidence of His working in our lives? It's a million-dollar question for us today. Let us pray. Father, we come before You today, and we simply ask the question, can we trust You, God? I guess a better question to ask you is, do we trust You, Lord? do we trust you to be you?
1: Do we trust you to handle life around us? Do we trust you to provide us with what we need every day of our lives?
0: Or do we trust others? Do we trust our own ability and our own capability? Do we trust our own power and our own insight and our own wisdom? Oh, God, make us a church and make us a people that no matter what life throws at us, We will be faithful.
1: We will be faithful to you and to your word. We will be faithful to each other as we do life together, as your people, as your congregation. Make us people who are just faithful to you in all circumstances. These things I pray in your son's powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Northbridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northbridge Church, you can find us online at
0: mynorthbridge.org.